Our text this morning is just two verses in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we ask for your blessing this morning on our study of your word. May it not only be heard, but may it be acted upon by those of us who hear it and preach it. And Lord, we long to be people who please you. Lord, guard us especially from self-deceit, from the illusion that we are something we are not. In your name we pray, amen. When you hear the word religion, what comes to mind is probably not favorable. You probably think of an external system of belief. You probably think of rules to keep. You think of rituals, maybe, or ceremonies to observe. Religion is a a very broad word, isn't it? I mean, we can mean anything from Christianity to voodoo to Roman Catholicism to Islam. All of these are considered religions. In fact, in evangelical Christianity, and by what I mean by evangelical is those who hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in evangelical Christianity, we usually avoid the word religion. How many of you have ever said to someone, being a Christian isn't a religion, it's a relationship, right? And there is validity to saying that. By that, we mean that it is possible to keep an external form of religion or religiosity and not know Christ, not know God, not belong to him. Hell will be filled with religious people. So there is some validity to that. The New Testament only uses the word religion a couple of other times, besides here in James chapter 1, once to describe Judaism, the the Jewish system of faith in Acts chapter 26 verse 5, and Paul mentions the religion of angels in Colossians 2 verse 18. So this is not a common word in the New Testament. And James uses the word in a positive way. He uses the word in the way the reformers would have used the word or the Puritans hundreds of years ago would have used the English words religion or piety. And they use these words to describe disciplined Christian living. Gathering together for worship, reading, studying, and teaching the Bible, training 
your children in the things of God, consistent, passionate prayer. These would have been the things that the reformers and then later the Puritans would have called religion or piety. And if you ever read authors from those times, they will use this word like James does here in a a favorable way, in a positive way. I think for us, we will define religion here in James chapter 1 as the practice of devotion to God. The practice of devotion to God. So this is not just something that is a feeling, feeling devoted. And it is not just ritual, cold performance of ceremonies or keeping of rules. It is the practice of devotion. Those things come together in what we mean by religion. For James, religion is one aspect of being a doer of the word. Verses 26 and 27 actually belong to the passage that we looked at last time, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. In verse 18 of James chapter 1, we are God's first fruits, whom he has brought about by his will and as brought forth by the power of the word, the gospel. Because of that, we are a people who pursue righteousness. And in pursuing righteousness, we must receive the implanted word. And receiving the implanted word means not hearing only, but hearing and doing, being doers of the word. Verses 26 and 27 form a conclusion to what James was saying in these other verses. They are the conclusion, another example of what it means to be a doer of the word. In chapter 2, verse 1, the very next verse, James will start a new subject. In verses 19 through 25, James distinguishes between two types of hearers of the word. Someone who hears the word only and someone who hears the word and acts. Someone who does the word. In verses 26 and 27, James is making the same kind of comparison. James is drawing a distinction between two types of religion. There is a worthless religion, and then there is a pure religion, pure and undefiled religion. And the great warning here in verse 26 is that a person can think that he or she is religious can think of themselves as someone who is practicing devotion to God, but in reality is deceiving himself. That's what he means here by deceiving his heart, his own heart, deceiving himself. Because this person's religion is not what they think it is, Their religion, instead of being before God as something pure and undefiled, is actually worthless or empty or vain. This word is translated all three of these ways. 
worthless, empty, vain. This word worthless is used in Acts chapter 14, verse 15 to describe the worship of idols. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Lystra, and their miracles are so fantastic that the citizens of the city believe that they are the incarnate forms of Zeus and Hermes, two of the, the Roman gods. And so they begin to pull out animals, drag out animals, and start the process of offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, who, of course, uh, can't tolerate this, tear their own clothes in dismay, and cry out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, these worthless things, empty, meaningless, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. James says someone can deceive themselves into thinking they are practicing a devotion to God, but that their religion actually only amounts to the worthlessness, the emptiness of idolatry. That it amounts to nothing more than that. That's a pretty serious consideration. But standing apart in contrast with this so-called religion is a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. This is religion that pleases God. The words pure and undefiled are words that describe animal sacrifices that were acceptable and pleasing to God. When the Lord instituted the covenant with the people of Israel requiring sacrifices, they couldn't just bring any animal out of their barn or their field to offer to God. They were to bring the best. It had to be an animal without blemish. It couldn't be diseased. All kinds of regulations about what a pure and undefiled sacrifice was to God. And what James is doing by using these words, he is saying that our religion is not just empty ritual, it isn't just ceremonial, and it isn't just feeling, we must act, but that it is done before God as an act of worship, just as offering sacrifices was an act of worship. So religion here then is not just checking off the boxes and jumping through all the hoops. It is pleasing God with devoted practice. So despite our wariness of the word religious, we want to be religious people. We want to be religious people in the way that James means religious here. What James gives us here then are three essential actions for practicing pure religion. Three essential actions so that you and I can practice a pure religion. And they are, in summary, bridle your tongue, help the helpless, and resist the world. Bridle your tongue, help the helpless, and resist the world. Now note, these aren't everything belonging to a pure and undefiled religion. 
Just like I can't say a skilled basketball player must shoot well and mean that a skilled basketball player, a good basketball player, can only shoot well. But if he can't shoot, he's not going to be a skilled basketball player. It's the same thing here. James isn't dumping everything out here on the page for us about what pure and undefiled religion is, but he is saying this, that without these things, religion is worthless. It is empty. So first of all, verse 26, bridle your tongue. Bridle your tongue. And we know that James is steeped in Old Testament scriptures, and here he hits on one of the great themes of the Old Testament's wisdom texts especially, and that is, uh, and, and when I say wisdom texts, especially Psalms and Proverbs, and that is the problem with the tongue, the sin of speech. He has already mentioned being slow to speak in verse 19, that we need to be slow to speak, not in rashness, we don't speak in anger, we are to be slow to speak. In chapter 3, he really exposes how corrupt, how dangerous, and how powerful the tongue is. He refers in chapter 4, verse 1, to quarreling and fighting. In chapter 4, verse 11, he rebukes speaking evil against one another and judging one another. In chapter 4, verse 16, he condemns boasting. And in chapter 5, verse 9, he warns us against grumbling against one another. That grumbling against one another isn't just complaining in general, it's complaining about somebody to somebody else. In chapter 5, verse 12, he tells us to not swear, take oaths. And these are all texts we'll get to. This matter, though, of the tongue, how we speak to one another and how we speak about one another is a big concern for James. And I think that is because how we talk, how we use our tongues is a true indicator of the duplicities in our hearts, these fractures these divisions, the things that God is making whole. So whether that's boasting or lying or abusing other people with our words, they reveal hearts that are split, that are broken. Here James says the tongue must be bridled as though the tongue is an animal that must be harnessed controlled, reined in. He will elaborate on this very same word picture in chapter three. So we're to bridle our tongue. A person who thinks of himself or herself as religious but doesn't have control of the tongue lives in self-deception. That person cannot practice pure and undefiled religion. The expressions of the unbridled tongue, what it means for our tongues to not be bridled, 
aren't given here. Would certainly would include profanity, abusive speech, gossip. Most likely the unbridled tongue does all of these things. But I think what is foremost in James' mind are the ideas of boasting and backbiting. And here's why I say that. Boasting and backbiting. First of all, it's because of the context. Where he's going to go when he gets to chapter 2. And how there is partiality that is being shown within the assembly of believers. So this unbridled tongue, to some degree, is describing someone who promotes their superior devotion to God, but doesn't deliver. It's someone who makes very pious claims about their religious fervor, but fails to practice the very things that demonstrate devotion. And maybe even speaks against or belittles those who are in need, those who are vulnerable. But also, there is this idea, there has to be this idea of backbiting. And the reason I say that is in verse 27, James talks about the world. And in chapter 4, James will link the world and friendship with the world as being evidenced by quarreling and fighting. This backbiting. So when what is in James's mind then when he talks about the tongue being unbridled is he's talking about this proud, boastful kind of expression, this speech that says one thing about my devotion to God and my religion, my commitment to God, but is hypocritical because they don't actually practice it as well as being friends with the world and quarreling and fighting and backbiting. Failing to bridle our tongues sets up a worthless religion. You might say a false devotion. As I said, we're going to get more to the tongue because James has a lot more to say about it. But this is the, the first essential action. Bridle your tongue. Secondly, help the helpless, verse 27. Help the helpless. James uses this word visit here in verse 27, and he doesn't mean dropping by and saying hi, though the word itself can, can mean that. It can mean a visit, visiting with somebody, but he means something like investigating with concern, looking into somebody's welfare, in many contexts, and I would include James here, he means coming to the aid of somebody. It's understanding what they're going through, what they're facing, and coming to their aid. We use the word this way when we talk about hospital visitation. We use the, our English word this exact same way. If you go to the hospital to visit somebody, you are going to show concern. You are going to comfort someone who is ill or recovering from surgery. You're going to see if they need anything. Can I, can I get you anything? Can I bring anything? Give me a call. An example of the word visit is used this way in the New Testament. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 78, this is Zachariah's prayer. Zachariah was John the Baptist's father. 
And in his praise of God for what God is doing by giving him and his wife Elizabeth a baby, even in their old age, and the, the prophecies that surround this John, the, his name will be John, and he will be the forerunner of the Messiah, Zechariah praises God in this way, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. So this visiting the people of Israel is God's investigating their plight and coming to their aid by providing redemption. And this, for Zechariah, and he understands, is the fulfillment of prophecy. After God had been silent for hundreds of years, God is now investigating or paying attention to coming to their aid. According to James, then, pure and undefiled religion is investigating the affliction of orphans and widows and coming to their aid. Orphans and widows, those without a father, those without a husband to look out and care for them. These were the folks who were most vulnerable to exploitation, to being trampled over, neglected, forgotten, even used. They, because of their situation in life, were at the mercy of others easily taken advantage of. And so because they didn't have means, because they didn't have wealth or importance, they were seen as substandard. This is why the Old Testament made provision for widows and orphans in the nation of Israel, in the covenant. For example, Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. The minor prophets are filled with rebukes to the people of Israel because instead of taking care of the orphan and the widow, they were actually oppressing them. The affliction of orphans and widows is then mainly financial need, but their affliction also encompasses the helplessness and this vulnerability that poverty brings. Visiting the orphan, visiting the widow certainly means helping them financially, but it also means defending them from oppression. And we have to answer a couple of questions for ourselves then. Number one, how does this translate or correlate into our culture, which is different in a lot of ways than the first century ancient Near East? And secondly then, how do we apply it? How do we live it out? How do we actually visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction? Well, we don't have orphanages in our culture, do we? Not in the United States, anyway. We don't have orphanages. We certainly do have orphans. We certainly have children whose parents have died. More frequently, they are abandoned children, children who maybe are abused and 
who are either put up for adoption or placed in foster care by the state. In the state of Washington, there are over 10,000 children in foster care. Approximately 2,000 of those 10,000 children are waiting for official adoption, permanent adoption. We also have widows. Now, in our culture, women are not as vulnerable as they were in the first century. In the first century, for the most part, a woman's livelihood, her ability to live and subsist, depended upon her husband's station and income. And once that was gone, she was left alone and often destitute. In our culture, there are many more structures in place that provide for widows, pension plans, social security, things like that. Okay. We also know, even from the Bible, that the first line of provision for a widow should be her family. It should be her family. Even 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 teaches us this when it says that someone who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. But there are some widows who are left without family, even today, without resources, and who need help. Also note this, orphans and widows are representative of those who are helpless and vulnerable. There are others who fit into this category, even if they're not orphans or widows. What about kids living on the street? What about the disabled? What about victims of trafficking? These are all oppressed, victimized people in many ways. Now, of course, we know that not Everyone who is in financial distress is helpless. There are people who are lazy. There are people who abuse the system. And some are living out the consequences of selfish, unwise choices. The book of Proverbs has many warnings to the fool and to the simple, as well as instructions to be generous to the poor. But just because the presence of fools and frauds requires discernment from us doesn't mean we're exempt from visiting orphans and widows. So then, how do we actually live it out? How can we apply these things? Believe it or not, this question is actually controversial for many Christians. Because some believe that what is often called social justice, is the mission of the church. Some believe that the church is called to establish justice in the world. That is the primary goal of the church. Then there are other believers, and I would say they are at the opposite end of a spectrum. There are other believers who say the church should only be concerned about people's spiritual condition that we really should only be concerned about the reality that mankind, every woman and every man, is born alienated from God, 
and destined for an eternity of separation from him if they do not believe in Christ for salvation and repent from their sin. There are some that believe that's our only business as the church. Not alleviating poverty, not working against enslavement or oppression. Now, to really work through this controversy is beyond the scope of this sermon. I know some of you are like, oh, come on. But really, if I were to get into this now, we'd never get back to James. Okay. But I will say this. Both of these arguments have a case from Scripture. There are texts of Scripture that would support both of those arguments, and both of them do well to caution each other, to be honest. Neither extreme is right. Neither of those two extreme positions is right, as I would understand the scriptures. What is clear in James chapter 1, verse 27, though, is that pure and undefiled religion before God is to help the helpless. And this means that we are to live it out, first of all, as individuals, as believers, And then also as churches, as assemblies, as bodies of believers. Now this this reality that we as individual Christians are to live this out is really, I think, what most New Testament commands regarding generosity and helping uh, helping the helpless, helping the needy are really aimed at. For example, John chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? There are many others like that. James is one of them. But most of those are directed to believers and individuals that we're to be generous, that we're to care for people who are in need. We are all going to have different capacities and various means to help others. For some of us, helping others will take place as as opportunities come before us, as we're confronted with needs. For others of us, visiting the orphan and the widow is going to be a more proactive pursuit. It's going to be a more proactive ministry. Both are right. And there is a reason that we're gifted in different ways. I rejoice to see many of you at Crossway be foster parents and adopt children. We have widows in our church family. And while we as a church body are always ready and leadership are ready to take care of them, and contribute to their need. Many of you do that on your own without the leadership of this church needing to ask you to. I know that. I see it. You take care of their property for them. You take them meals. You look in on them. You give them rides. Many of you do that. Some of you work with street kids. 
Many of you serve in different ways as you pursue what the Holy Spirit has put on your heart, what the scriptures have commanded us all as believers to do. We also practice helping the helpless, though, as a church. We are to do it as a body. Even though I think most of the New Testament commands, I want to understand, are to just individuals, to believers, to live this way, what it does is it gives grounds for the church as a whole to organize itself to meet needs, to help the helpless. How do we do that across way? Well, there are some examples. We work with the Everett Gospel Mission, particularly the women's mission, the women's shelter, which also has kids, children. Now, of course, we're talking about things outside of the pandemic conditions here, okay? During the pandemic, we have not been able to do this. But once a month, a group of ladies goes to the Everett Gospel Mission and serves those women, ministers to those women. We contribute goods. Sometimes it's the holidays, sometimes it's other times. We contribute to the needs. That's a partnership that we have. That's one way that churches, and here at Crossway, that we do support organizationally the needs of the helpless, the needy. We call them compassion ministries, by the way. We also support the Galilee Home for Orphans in Nagaland, India, for those of you who don't know that. We haven't talked about that a lot lately. We contribute some financially. Some of you do as individuals contribute financially. We've also sent a couple of teams there to serve and to minister. We have benevolence funds that we distribute as they're needed and to which many of you contribute, either as needs arrive or as you, just as a regular part of your giving. We also partner with the Elisha Foundation and Johnny and Friends, two ministries to those who suffer from disabilities and their families. We give financial support, and we also support by participation in their ministries, whether that's doing retreats or going and serving at a camp. These are ways here at Crossway that we seek to, in an organized, if you want to call it program, that's fine, programmatic way to visit the orphan and the widow. If you take all of that together, though, any of those expressions, pure and undefiled religion, then, is coming to the aid of those who are helpless. This, by the way, was... On James's heart, we see that in other places in the Bible. You can see it in the book of Acts, where he reminds uh, the believers in Jerusalem and other leadership to remember the poor. We know it from Galatians chapter 1, where the apostle Paul is writing, and he's recounting to the Galatians his experience of going to Jerusalem, meeting with James and the other apostles, And how James, as the spokesman for the leadership there, asked Paul to remember the poor, which Paul says, one thing we were eager to do. We also see organization in the New Testament, by the way, too. I I shouldn't mention that. I talked about these commands that were to individuals about being generous, taking care of the helpless. 
But we also see organized giving. We see organized efforts. Think about Jerusalem being struck by a famine and the believers there suffering. And what does the Apostle Paul do as actually initiated by the church in Corinth? He begins a fund. All the churches in Asia Minor and in the, the Greek Peninsula to begin to contribute funds. And then he and his team actually take them to Jerusalem to distribute them, to give them to the leaders there and the people there who are suffering. That is organized, programmatic way of visiting the widow and the orphan. You also see it in 1 Timothy 5, which I mentioned, where the church was to keep a list of widows. They were actually organized about it, Paul says. He commands it. Keep a list of those who are going to be in need so that you can, in an organized way, take care of them. Okay, so these are all ways of pure and undefiled religion, coming to the aid of those who are helpless. Thirdly, resist the world. Verse 27, resist the world. James also says that pure and undefiled religion is keeping oneself unstained by the world. By the world here, James means the world system. It is the worldview and the way of life that marks the whole of humanity separated from God and hostile toward God. This is what John is referring to in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, when he tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. No one can love the world and love the Father also. And I love the picture in this word unstained or unpolluted. We become stained, we become polluted when we buy into the world's view of things. It's grid, it's way of evaluating meaning and worth and dignity. What's right and what's wrong. It's entire value system. We adopt its moral compass as our own. That's what being stained by the world is. Worldliness corrupts devotion to God. In the crescendo of this letter, like many other things in these two verses, James is actually going to talk more about this. And in the crescendo of this letter, at its center, James will cry out, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have one hand on the world and one hand on God. You can't have a shared allegiance. And in James chapter 4... This worldliness is his summary of quarreling and fighting and anger because we can't get what we want. We even, he says, go to the extreme of murder because we can't get what we want. Now think about this for a second. On the one hand, James is saying, Pure and undefiled religion, true worship, 
that pleases God, that plays out before God. God is watching. Pure and undefiled religion must bridle the tongue. It is to visit the orphan and the widow. It is to help the helpless. And it is to remain or keep itself unstained from the world. Our love for God, our practice of devotion to God must not ever be compromised by the world's system, its thinking, its values. And think about this. It is possible to visit the orphan and the widow, but be stained by the world. It's possible to fall into a social gospel, that is one danger, and be stained by the world. It is also possible to be unstained by the world and set up so many great lines of moral purity, but fail to visit the widow and the orphan. And to simply take the laissez-faire hands off, God will do that when he returns. God will establish all justice when he returns. It is possible to remain unstained by the world but fail to visit the widow and the orphan. And you know what? Either one is partial. Neither one is whole, which is James' entire point in this letter. To do either without the other is to practice a fractured devotion to God, a devotion that isn't whole. We want whole religion. We're after the wholeness, which is to visit the widow and the orphan, bridle the tongue, and to not be stained by the world, right? Let's pray. Lord, what power you have packed into such a small set of words in these verses. And Lord, it is our desire to, to practice religion, a whole religion, one that is one that is remaining unstained from the world, but is also active in visiting, aiding those who are helpless. And Lord, we pray that you would give us energy, that you would give us wisdom, discernment, in how to continue to do those things, what new doors might open for us, how we might pursue what you are bringing before us in your word. We long to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Help us to do so in a way that pleases you, undefiled and pure religion. Lord, we thank you for your greatness. Even in the midst of so much turmoil in our, our day and in our particular 
location in the world, whether those are natural disasters or whether those are political firefights or all of the various things that are going on around us, Lord, that you remain steady, you remain constant. You are faithful. And Lord, you are sovereign. And we praise you this morning as our sovereign God who sustains us, who keeps us in the midst of all of these difficulties. May we see these various trials as your good work of making us perfect. In your name we ask these things. Amen.